Hi, I'm Jack and welcome to Thoughts from the Bottom Left, a weekly podcast in which co-host Joel and I converse on the most important issues facing today's society, whether they be political, philosophical, or anything else. Today we're going to be discussing a more philosophical topic. We're going to discuss antinatalism, as introduced to both of us, I think, by Alex O'Connor or Cosmic Skeptic on YouTube. And the argument that I was first introduced to was that of um, David Benneter, the asymmetry argument, and that is based on four fundamental principles. One, that the presence of pain is bad. Two, that the presence of pleasure is good. Three, that um, the absence of pain is good, even if the good is unenjoyed by anyone. And finally, four, the absence of pleasure is not bad, unless there is someone for whom this absence is a deprivation. Of course, the main argument here is that uh, it, it is morally formidable to, to give birth to a child, because uh, I, I guess pain is inevitable, uh, and, and thus you shouldn't put your child through pain. And the only way to actually stop pain is, is to not give birth. I mean, of, of Joel, I think... Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you'll you'll apply it more practically to life, but what are your thoughts on, on the fundamental asymmetry argument proposed by Benita? Well, so conceptually, it's a strong argument that if you want to avoid the pain of children, don't have children. That's a pretty simple argument. But then the problems you start to uncover is, well, that will lead to the extinction of the human race. But that's also not entirely what the argument is. The argument probably will be interpreted more... <coughs> Uh, relative to each indi- each individual and their uh, their decision to procreate. Uh, yeah, I mean, of course you you can give people that that moral liberty, I guess, whether you want to take that risk. Of course, I, I guess the main role of a parent is to is to you know minimize the pain of their child. But then once again, it comes back to that argument that the only way to really minimize that 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 pain to to zero. Is is to not have a child. Also, the argument that it's almost for the pleasure of of the the, the parents that people have ch- children to look after them when they're old. I mean, that's almost a selfish argument, and it's almost kind of uh, ignorable in 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 the moral sense. Um, so I I I I mean I I think I I've, I've written something myself that I think a, a little bit of a piece on on antinatalism. And, and I think one of the quotes is, the only guaranteed way to avoid increasing the harm quotient of uh, sentient life is for human procreation to be discontinued as a moral imperative. Of course, the inevitable and for Benita welcome consequence of this advice will be to hasten the extinction of the human species. Extinction in this powerfully counterintuitive formulation is the only ethical outcome. And I think this is where it causes a little, a little despair among, among any philosophical community that, uh, of course, extinction of the human species is an intrinsically bad thing. But, I mean, uh, I think, Joel, I think you believe, it, when it comes down to, like, the big red button question, would you press the button to wipe out the whole human race? Uh, I, I think you would press it. So where is that difference for you? Uh, well, it depends on how uh, the extinction happens, which is a different argument in itself. But if you're going to press the red button that ends life, uh, all life on Earth, uh, painlessly, then that's different to how everyone imagines that life will end on Earth 
naturally, which would either be the sun melting the earth, um, or nuclear warfare, which is both way more painful than just the painless death of the red button. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, I mean, when it comes down to the book, I haven't actually read the book, but I, I think there are some, some conflicts between people who have actually read the book. I mean, I, I know a lot about the book, and, I, and I've almost seen summaries and certain extracts. And, I, I mean, people argue the sociological ignorance of the antenatal philosophy, at least the one proposed by Beneter. Um, even in Beneter's better never to have been, as far as I'm aware, like I said, as someone who hasn't actually read the book, two chapters are ostensibly devoted to the practical denouement of, pra- of pra- pro- programmatic antenatalism. Um, but he, he still considers humans in the broadest and vaguest, most abstract sense you could imagine. I actually have a quote. Um, the more obvious burden for the final generation is that it would live in a world in which the structures of society would gradually break down. There would be no younger working generation growing the crops, preserving order, running hospitals and homes for the aged, and burying the dead. The situation is a bleak one indeed, and we can certainly say that looming extinction would be bad for the final people in this way. Um, that's the end of the quote. Um, and I think, once again, this is Benita using humanity as a, as, as a statistical unit, rather, people as statistical units, rather than actually applying these into a real world. Oh, God. A, a real world in which people are living in real social conditions. Right, it's a very impractical idea. But the, the concept of the world is going to become extinct, and that's a notion that no one's going to disagree with, or no, at least no one who believes in science will disagree with, which seems to be everyone but the Vice President of America. Um, so, if you're going to... Uh, if the world is inevitably going to cease to exist is an inevitability that is inarguable, but... If we find ways to minimalize or completely eradicate the amount of pain that's experienced through extinction, then that's something that we should look to prioritize. Not necessarily in the sense that the world should be moving towards antinatalism, but that extinction is inevitable and it's going to be painful when it happens. I mean, to escape the moral consequence here and talk about some of some of the um, kind of kind of uproar uh, about about not just. I mean, the book in general, I think, Better Never To Have Been, which was published, I think, in 2006. People think this is just a new idea that spreads anti-family ideas and, and instills them in your child's mind. Um, of, of course, Christian people thinking this is the case, and, but, but there are, actually, we'll talk about it later, there are religious instances for, like, Buddhism, where antinatalism is actually suggested. And I think I want to make the point that this is not a new idea. I have a quote from Paradise Lost by John Milton, from, this book was first published in 1667, and that is, Did I request thee, maker from my clay, to mould me man? Did I solicit thee from darkness to promote me? And I think this is that same sort of idea. Um, we'll actually get onto something about consent and how there is no way for an unborn child to give consent to be born. And whether I agree with this statement or not, this is present in very early works. We also have Gustave Flaubert, who wrote um, some fantastic books. People probably know Madame Bovary, but... He also said, um, quote, The idea of bringing someone into the world fills me with horror. I would curse myself if I were a father. A son of mine, oh, no, no, no. 
might may my entire flesh perish and may I transmit to no one the aggravations and the disgrace of existence. These people have been thinking about this idea for a long time. So what do you think about people kind of suggesting now that this is just a new way to, to spread anti-family ideologies into the minds of children? So this rather clearly isn't a new idea, but it's an idea that is very much unknown. My phone doesn't even recognize it as a word. Uh, so it's something that will become more popular as people look to, once again, reduce the amount of pain that uh, is experienced in life. But uh, to the argument that it serves to deconstruct the traditionalist family outlook is rather absurd because it depends on if you think that traditionalist family outlook is one that's positive in the first place, one that is conducive to an environment that reduces the amount of suffering and the one that fosters the best relationships. And I'd argue that uh, a traditional family construct such as that doesn't necessarily provide the best environment for children. I guess we'll go back to another Gustave Flaubert quote, and that is from November, uh, not not the month, it was a while ago, but uh, he, se quote, he seriously thought that there is less harm in killing a man than producing a child. In the first case, you are relieving someone of life, not his whole life, but half, or a quarter, or a hundredth part of the existence that is going to finish, that would finish without you. But as for the second, he would say, are you not responsible to him for all the tears he will shed from the cradle to the grave? Without you, he would never have been born. And why is he born? For your amusement, not for his, that's for sure. To carry your name, the name of a fool, I'll be bound. You may as well write that name on some wall. Why do you need a man to bear the burden of three or four letters? And I think um, he argues here that having a child is worse than killing someone, and I guess that's where I disagree. I believe... Uh, contrary to popular belief that antinatalists are suicidal, I believe that life is worth continuing after birth. And thus, although possibly contradictory, ending a life is worse in, in, in that suffering also carries on to those around that person. Uh, I think the, the main moral goal here in all of these antinatalist arguments is, is kind of minimising suffering, and that is a utilitarian argument. Um, but I, I also think here that there is a more direct and thus greater moral accountability for such an act um, without even including the fact that it's illegal. Um, although morality and ethics must transcend the boundaries of practical application to some extent, I still believe the proposal that, 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 that killing someone is not as bad as giving birth uh, is quite flawed. Right, that argument kind of veers off into something that isn't necessarily antinatalist or the antinatalism that we've proposed. The antinatalism we've proposed is not one I explicitly support, but it's one that we're going to discuss it's that life um, before conception uh, is not, it's not necessarily that life is not worth continuing, it's life isn't worth beginning in the first place. And if you're going to kill someone, that life's already began. So if you're going to kill someone, that's depriving someone of life, which is different to uh, giving birth, not giving birth in the first place because they're not being deprived of life in that sense. So I think this argument is rather different and more barbaric than the previous you, you also, one. Uh, of course, that is from a piece of fiction, but you also have to consider the, the knock-on effect that that has on family members. And as I said, that main utilitarian principle, um, the one that kind of carries the antinatalist argument, is, is to minimise suffering. And I think by killing someone, you're not necessarily minimising suffering. Also, coming back to this knock-on effect, Benita 
um, according to Veneta, by creating a child, we are not responsible uh, just for the child's suffering, but we may also be co-responsible for the suffering of further offspring of this child. And a quote is, assuming that each couple has three children on an original pair's cumulative descendants, um, uh, over 10 generations amounts to 88,572 people. Uh, that constitutes a lot of pointless, avoidable suffering. To be sure, full responsibility for it all does not lie with the original couple because each new generation faces the choice of whether or not to continue that line of descendants. Nevertheless, they bear some responsibility for the generations that ensue. If one does not desist from having children, one can hardly expect one's descendants to do so. And I think you also argued earlier, Joel, when we were talking about this, that the, also the people that those descendants are associated with Will, will suffer, and, and thus that chain is, is even longer. Right, there's only, well, 88,000 plus direct uh, impacts, from, uh, direct, like, descendants from that uh, family line, but that's not even taken into account if one of those 88,000 or whatever will marry into someone, will create a family of their own, will uh, eventually die, and their death will inflict suffering on other people, so it's not just the 88,000 you mentioned, it's... Uh, it's much larger than that because the impact of one person isn't just defined by who they bring into the world, but also who they are associated with and what they do in the world themselves. Okay, so we're going to move on to another, another theory here, and that is negative utilitarianism. Now, uh, negative utilitarianism argues that minimizing suffering has greater moral importance than maximizing happiness. And I think um, this feeds into that asymmetry argument also. Um, so we have some assumptions of Jan Narvesen, uh, I'm not sure who this person really, really is, um, but um, these assumptions are that there is no moral obligation to produce a child, even if we could be sure that it will be very happy throughout its life, and there is no, there, there is, is a moral obligation to not produce a child if it can be foreseen that it will be unhappy. This once again is that Benetaresque anti-natalist uh, uh, argument, and th therefore uh, Narvesen actually makes this conclusion from those two and that is in general if it can be foreseen neither that the child will be unhappy nor that it will uh, bring disutility upon others there is no duty to have or not to have a child um so so joe what do you think about not just those proposals but but about negative utilitarianism in general well it's impossible to tell that uh before you've had the child or even as you've had the child how exactly that child's life will uh, will pan out uh, sometimes children are born with deformities or other irregularities that cause immense and chronic suffering. And that's something that you can't determine before you've given birth to them and something that isn't completely apparent whilst you've given birth to them. It's something that you can only really envision at the end of their lives, which is coming back to the original argument, is the only way to ensure that the child doesn't suffer is to not have a child in the first place. I also have a quote here that's from someone called Peter Vessel Zapf. I'm not really sure this person is, but I, 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 they, they really appear a lot when I was looking for some quotations here. And this quotation is, quote, To bear children into this world is like carrying wood to a burning house. Uh, I think we're going to move on now to some more, uh, some different arguments. Uh, and that is one, first is environmental impact. Um... Volunteers of the voluntary human extinction movement argue that human activity is the primary cause of environmental degradation, and therefore refraining from reproduction is, quote, the humanitarian alternative to human disasters. Um, uh, 
a lot of people, Human Vetter, uh, Theophile de Girard, uh, Tina Rulli, Karen McCuma, and Julio Cabrera, all argue that presently, uh, that rather than engaging in the moral, morally prob- problematic act of procreation, one could do good by adopting already existing children. Um, de, de Girard emphasizes that across the world, there are millions of children who need care. And I think, um, you know, both of these kind of feed in. I think minimising the amount of people who are born minimises environmental degradation, linking back to that red button question also. But what do you think also about the, the adoption idea? So that's way more of a practical proposal than antinatalism in the sense that procreation is bad and should be stopped. Because this is also saying that procreation isn't necessarily the best path, for, uh, path forward, but it's also not leading to the extinction of the species when you're helping a pre-existing life and minimizing the amount of suffering in that life. And to the environmental uh, issue, it's clear that humans are causing global warming and the more humans there are, the more global warming there's going to be. So if we want, if we want to minimize suffering for future generations, it's not only important for us to take care of the earth for those future generations, but also not to burden them with the uh, environmental damage that we are inflicting right now. So you could also argue that it isn't just um, pain for the human that is born, but it's also the the pain that that human inflicts that should be stopped. So you use the word the term minimizing suffering a lot. Would you say that you're utilitarian in that sense? Um, well, any way to minimize the amount of suffering is one that I'm going to look to take because suffering is, uh, as we've said, objectively bad. So you believe that that the 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 end goal for for ethics in general is to minimize suffering as much as possible. I wouldn't say uh, the primary. Uh, I'd say it's close to prime. I would say it's the entire of the end goal, but it's certainly a big part to reduce the amount of suffering that humans and other organisms uh, face. But you are still against the antinatalist proposal. Um, yes, because I think it's impractical, which isn't necessarily the proposal. But I think it could lead to. I'm not necessarily. I'm not necessarily pro-natalist, but antinatalism to me seems too far to uh, the argument that procreation should be stopped. Like I think there are other ways to minimize suffering that doesn't just include uh, stopping of procreation. But if suff- minimizing suffering is one of the the prime goals of morality and ethics in general, wouldn't you say that the best way to minimize suffering? is to be antinatalist, and you've said that before, so why, why is there a line between that and the practical application? Uh, well, because conceptually antinatalism is, I wouldn't necessarily say flawless, but it's a very logically sound <laughs> argument, but it's one that is a, is a dangerous path towards extinction. Um, the, suffer, the suffering that you mentioned obviously will be reduced from antinatalism, but I don't think that it is a general rule is a good idea to uh, have a widespread lack of uh, birthing. Um, what about abortion? What are your thoughts on abortion? Because, of course, antinatalism can lead to a particular position on the morality of abortion. Uh, according to David Bennett, one comes into existence in the morally relevant sense. I think that's an important term, morally relevant sense. 
when consciousness arises, when a fetus becomes sentient, and up until that time, an abortion is moral, whereas continued pregnancy would be immoral. Beneta refers to, or he often refers to EEG brain studies and studies on the pain perception of the fetus, which states that fetal consciousness arises no earlier than between 28 and 30, and 30 weeks of pregnancy, before which it is incapable of feeling pain. So what are your thoughts on abortion? I'm pretty sure you're pro-choice, but uh, on what moral grounds are you pro-choice? So there are so many different things that bleed into the issue of abortion. And um, pro-choice for a reason that isn't necessarily antinatalism. I think that this is not the business of the state to interfere in such a thing. But from the antinatalist humanitarian perspective, if the life that is being bid is one that you can guarantee to be riddled with more pain than usual, then that uh, the pregnancy is not worth continuing. Okay, uh, I think we're going to go back a little bit. I know we're kind of jumping back and forth here, but I, I have a lot of quotes lined up. Um, one of these is by Pell Scogsbird, and it is kind of on the ridiculousness of our human rituals, uh, sort of paralleled with the antinatalist argument. Uh, he says, uh, We celebrate life and mourn death, yet life create death and death create life. Every cradle is a grave. Why not celebrate death and mourn life? I don't think he's making the actual proposition here that we should celebrate death and mourn life. But he's kind of saying that, you know, he's kind of making that, that the most important line is, yet life create death and death create life. I think this links into the fact that um, uh, kind of giving birth to someone is bringing them that inevitable death and an ultimate pain. Um, so what do you think about that, Joel? Uh, well, yeah, it's, the cel uh, it's kind of highlighting the absurdity of celebrating life versus celebrating, uh, celebrating the start of life uh, versus celebrating the end of life. And I think that they should both be celebrated and considered equally, given how important they are. But uh, the implication that birth is somehow more profound than, uh, than a death is something that I just can't agree with. Uh, okay, so we'll just touch upon the... Um the, the argument for consent, and that is uh, Shauna Schifrin, Gerald Harrison, Julia Tanner, and Ashil Singh argue that procreation is mor morally problematic because of the impossibility of obtaining consent from the human who will be brought into existence. I mean, I personally think this is a ridiculous argument, but it kind of does feed into the point that you are not getting consent to give this person inevitable pain and make them suffer through that. And I think that does link quite well into, into the fundamental asymmetry anti-natalist argument posed by uh, Beneta. Right, it's an obvious statement that no one chose to be born because they didn't exist then. But... Obviously, they're not going to choose not to be born either. It's not like you can ask them for their consent because they're unborn. So uh, it's not. It's not a really. Uh, it's more of like a. Um, I mean, it's a paradox in a way. Right. It's a, It's more of a soundbite statement than it is an actual proposal. I've actually got a question for you. Uh, are you an antinatalist, and if so, what does antinatalism mean to you? Um, so I, I, I see this is where it's a really difficult question because we have to consider something that I really don't like to do, uh, practicality. But um, I, I, well, it's true, I, I really don't. But um, I, I think I, I, I can't disagree with the proposal because it makes ultimate sense. But then again, we need to come down to what, what the final goal is of our ethical thought. And if that is to minimise suffering, I think it, it makes sense. Um, also, there, there are, I would say, little to no holes in the argument 
but there is an insensitivity, especially shown by Benita, uh, like I said, in Beth and Never to Have Been, and perhaps that comes down to, to, to the person. I mean, if Noam Chomsky wrote a book on anti-natalism and was all for it, I'd kind of go, okay, then, Noam believes it, I think I should too. Or if Albert Camus wrote, you know, a book. But um, I, I think I am not an antinatalist in that I think the pleasure in life can be fantastic. And it is kind of taking that gamble. Um, whether it is morally wrong to to um, to give birth or not, I wouldn't, I wouldn't enforce upon that. I wouldn't legislate upon that. Because I think that taking that gamble is, is fair enough. People want children and children can be fantastic and experience great pleasure. But I think there is uh, an inevitability to pain and suffering, and thus the argument is, isn't, is, isn't too awful. But I mean, I, I know it's quite hard for me to formulate an answer because I don't really disagree with the proposal. But I, I, I don't think I would label myself an antinatalist. Would you label yourself one? Uh, no, not necessarily because of the, the practicality argument, and also that I think it can lead to a situation where obviously we have an extinction. Uh, there you mentioned life is fantastic. Is life being, uh, if is maximizing, uh, is maximizing pleasure the end goal of ethics to you? Uh, see, this is where I kind of become utilitarian. I, I do think that minimizing pain is more important than maximizing pleasure, and thus I fall victim to the asymmetry argument. It's just I think you've said it to me before that it kind of just feels wrong. That it almost it almost just doesn't feel right to deny people the right to have children, to create children, and to continue this world. And I guess that is a selfish point of view, but it, it's true. Um, so I don't think that the, the final goal is maximizing pleasure. But I, I and, and I guess I do agree with the asymmetry argument, but to an extent. I think the whole, you could live a life that's fantastic and beautiful and perfect, but then, well, not perfect, because you'd stub your toe. I do think that life was worth living, and I do think that life was worth beginning. But I think it's the gamble that, that should be the foundation of the antinatalist argument, that you are rolling a dice. That person could be born and suffer a major head injury, go through brain trauma, and have their leg, needing their leg to be amputated and their arms amputated, and they could have every disease possible and every virus outbreak affected them, and maybe they eat some chocolate once and they think, oh, well, that was nice, and then that life wasn't worth beginning. So I think my disagreeal with the antinatalist movement and... Um, why I wouldn't label myself an anti-natalist is because I don't really agree fully with the asymmetry argument. Right, so as you mentioned, the, the argument of anti-natalism really comes in three ways to me. The first one is what? This isn't a thing. And then you kind of delve into what it proposes, and it makes sense. But it's just the third wave is that it just doesn't feel right. As logically sound as the argument is, it's a practical impossibility that anyone is ever able to carry out antinatalism on a full scale. And speaking of carrying out antinatalism, what are your thoughts on abortion and how do they link to the minimizing of suffering theory that you have uh, proclaimed as being a belief of yours? Uh, so I, I'm, I, I think that if you are going to follow the antinatalist argument, of course, you are all for choice. Um, and you don't feel that the child feels pain until a certain point, of course. There are a lot of psychological evaluations on that. But I am pro-choice up to a, a certain point. I, I do believe that, that you should have that choice. I am by no means uh, that heavy pro-life so, or, or, you know, uh, I guess pro-natalism. But I, I, I believe, of course, like I said, I am traditionally pro-life. And how I think that links into the minimizing suffering argument 
I guess, is if you want to make that choice on the antenatalist basis that you don't want a child because um, they are going to suffer, or maybe you're going to suffer. And I think as a mother, I guess, uh, if a mother is to have a child at 16 or even at 14, uh, of course, they are going to suffer at the hands of that child. Maybe not directly because that wasn't the child's fault, but their socioeconomic position uh, could cause that could cause suffering for them. They couldn't finish school. They couldn't get the ed education they wanted. So I guess in that sense, it does link to the utilitarian argument. And I would argue that any utilitarian, uh, a utilitarianist that, that is pro-life is, is kind of not utilitarian. Right, as you mentioned, if the 14-year-old uh, girl has a baby, and if um, the girl decides to bring that uh, pregnancy to term, then in a sense that pregnancy will burden her in restricting her from doing what she wants in her life, which is why many people choose to have children later on in their life. So if they're 14, as you mentioned, they won't be able to finish school uh, or will be less likely to be able to finish school. Even if they do, that will be at the expense of that child, which is uh, imposing a burden and... Arguably increasing suffering. Right, yeah, increasing the suffering on that child. And if the, the mother's life is restricted and therefore burdened by the existence of this child. So if the mother wants to still pursue her career, that will be to the detriment of the child. So then you have uh, possibly one, unlikely even two, uh, lives that have be been infiltrated with more pain than it otherwise would have been without the pregnancy. Yeah, I think if you're going to stick in that utilitarian stance, there is no way that you could argue that that, that having a child at 14 is, is beneficial because you are, like you said, two cases of, of, of um, an unpleasurable infiltration. Uh, and I think, yeah, but I think to sort of wrap it up a little bit, uh, I do agree with the fundamental principle. There's actually a Kenton Engel quote, which is, uh, quote, Beneta argues that bringing someone into existence will always harm the person created, but failing to bring that person into existence will only deny them pleasures they'll never know. And I mean, if I wasn't born, I wouldn't have understood the pleasure of sitting on a beach and watching the sunset, or I wouldn't understand the simple pleasures of eating a, you know, a, a subway or something. I mean, but I, I, but I, to have never known that pain is, is, is intrinsically a good thing. But my disagreeal is with the asymmetry argument, which is why I can't label myself an antinatalist, because I think asymmetry exists, but not to the extent that Benita proposes. Uh, what about you? Right, I, um, I agree with you in the sense that <clears throat> it's a fundamentally uh, philanthropic proposal that seeks to minimise the amount of suffering that's experienced by children who aren't yet born. Um, so we kind of are in agreement that it's fundamentally a, an interesting topic that has some merit to it, but in practicality, it's completely absurd. And I have one final question. Do you wish you were never born? So I said this before, that my argument is that life is also always worth continuing. And so I can't place myself in that almost depressive state where I would say that I wish I wasn't born but I almost don't care if I was born or not because I wouldn't have known. I'd also like to comment on you using the word absurd. You should be careful. Albert Camus might jump from the afterlife and uh, punch you in the face. He's turning his grave. He will turn in his grave if you're using the word absurd wrong. But, um, I, I, yeah, I, I, I 
I don't wish I was never born because I don't I can't really subscribe to the to the to the fundamental anti-natalist asymmetry argument. Um, I'm going to ask you a question. Do you wish that you were never born? I don't wish that I was never born because, as you said, life is fantastic, and even though pain is and pain and suffering is inevitable in every life, once I've been born, it's my duty and responsibility to ensure that I suffer as least as possible and maximise the amount of pleasure in my life. Of course, thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Also, if you could follow me on Twitter, at Jack Merriman. Um, uh, yeah, that will be in the description of the podcast again. I'd also like to end with a quote that has nothing to do with the whole episode, although you, you could maybe argue that it is, but I'm not sure. And that is by Ernest, Ernest Hemingway from A Farewell to Arms. And that is, uh, quote, All thinking men are atheists. Thanks for listening. Thank you.